Amen. Before we approach the table this morning, we are going to read from Hebrews chapter 11, looking at verses 20 through 22. If you'll give your reverent and diligent attention to the reading of God's holy word. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. You may be seated. Last week I began speaking about Susanna Wesley, the godly mother of John and Charles Wesley, how she had endured the hardship of having to bury 11 of her children. And you might think that other than that, the Wesley family must have been a a perfect family, a high-functioning family to have such godly sons and offsprings as servants of God. But that is where you would be wrong. You might say that the Wesley home was somewhat of a dysfunctional home. Because whereas Susanna was a godly woman and mother, she was married to what you might call a dud. Samuel, her husband, was, well, we can just put it this way, was lackluster. Other than marrying Susanna and having 19 children, the rest of his life was less than stellar. He was a minister in the Church of England and was very well educated, and his sermons therefore were very intellectual. Yet most of his congregation was made up of illiterate farmers, and therefore few got much out of his sermons week after week, and his ministry had little to show for it. Also, he did not handle finances well, which caused quite a strain on his family. He spent most of his family's finance on publishing one of his exegetical works on the book of Job. And yet one of the articles that talks about this says this, yet his work was not well remembered and had little impact on his family other than as a hardship. It's not quite the legacy, no doubt, that you would be hoping for. Furthermore, Samuel was jailed. In fact, jailed twice because of unpaid debts. And if that wasn't bad enough, History tells that Samuel and Susanna had a marital dispute, as married couples are sometimes prone to do. And the result was Samuel got very upset and left his wife and kids for an entire year. He just moved out before they were reconciled again. If you take all of that, you would think that nothing good could have come out of this home. And this was a broken home. Nothing spiritual could have ever taken place. Yet we know that that is not the case. We know the results. We know the legacy, not only of John and Charles, but many of the descendants for years to come. And it demonstrates that God still works even despite our failures and our flaws and our sin. And that is very much what we see when we look at the lives of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the descendants of Abraham, to think that the trajectory of faith after Abraham was only upward 
would be to analyze the scriptures wrongly. To say it nicely, the patriarchs had problems, big ones. And yet, despite these problems and their sin, there was a faith. Because their faith was not in themselves, ultimately. And we can be thankful that our faith is not in them either. But their faith was in a God that is bigger than the problems. That God can still work out his plan amidst the dysfunctions of this life. And that is still very much true. And so if your life is a bit disordered, seek to be encouraged this morning. Not just because these situations were worse than yours, but rather to be encouraged in God, who is not surprised by any of this, but who works his perfect plan in a very imperfect world. And so we'll see that in two points this morning. The curse of a fallen family and then the blessing of a covenant God. First, the curse of a fallen family. The author of Hebrews, as you know, has spent a good amount of time on the life and faith of Abraham. And his faith, though not perfect, was quite exemplary. In fact, we saw that last week, did we not, that this trial of faith, when God calls Abraham to offer up his son Isaac, is something that Abraham went through. He was obedient to God, and as a result, he was commended for it. In fact, I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 51, when he talks about Abraham, and he says to the Israelites, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you are hewn, and to the quarry from which you are dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. And that is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing as well, saying, look to Abraham. We see a life of faith. But then the author of Hebrews goes on to say, and look to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph. And you might think, are you sure about that? I mean, I understand Abraham. I get it. But perhaps you just want to skip right over to Moses now and not speak of these figures, these characters, we might even say. But the author does not. He says, no, that there is lessons to be learned here as well. They may not be on the surface. They may not be polished and they may not be shined. But there are jewels of faith in these men's lives as well. And so, hopefully this morning, we are to look to these men and see what we can learn, both the, the bad as well as the good. And so we begin with Isaac. Isaac is somewhat hidden in the shadow of his father. In fact, Genesis only dedicates two chapters to Isaac, and it's not flattering chapters. It shows a house in chaos. It demonstrates a, a man that is... A bit of a wimpy man that is not managing his household well. He's dominated and manipulated by his two sons and even by his wife. Now it doesn't help that his sons were the twin sons, Jacob and Esau, 
who were a bit of a handful, to say the least. Pastor Myers likes to call his sons the sons of thunder, but Jacob and Esau were the true sons of thunder. They were already fighting and wrestling in the womb, so much so that Rebekah needs to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord tells her that there are two nations in your womb, two people from within, and they shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Do you hear that? Two nations in your womb. Two nations that we know that will be at war and in conflict with one another. And you see that from the get-go. From these two men who would be the fathers of these nations. In fact, even at birth, one of them is grasping the heel of the other. And that continued long after that rivalry and that competition. But it doesn't help that that does not seem to be corrected by their parents. In fact, it seems to be spurred on with each parent favoring one of the other sons, which is bad parenting altogether. I do not commend it. I don't think you'll find that method in any good Christian parenting book. And you know what happens. It culminates in Jacob in cahoots with his mother, coming up with a plan to deceive the then blind Isaac and steal the blessing from Esau. And you understand, you remember the story that as Esau is away to get meat, he is out hunting so as to receive the blessing. He's going to make this meal so that his father will bless him. Rebekah helps Jacob prepare a meaty meal and then dresses him up in Esau's clothes so that he smells like Esau. If you have children, you understand that, that each children has their unique smell. And some of them, depending on their age, have their unique stench. And he puts some body hair, some animal hair on Jacob, either because Jacob could not grow it or because Jacob seemingly waxed his arms and his chest. We're not quite sure what, but nevertheless, the Hebrew is a little bit vague on that point. Nevertheless, he is helped by his mother so that he can lie, lie to his own father and lie through his very teeth. And come to his father and say, Father, behold, it's me, Esau. And Isaac says, well, that's funny, you don't sound like Esau. To which he clears his throat and says it a little bit deeper. <coughs> it's Esau. <laughs> and through this deception, Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. And you've heard the phrase, take the money and run. Jacob takes the blessing and runs. And Isaac and Rebekah are left with a fuming Esau who vows to kill his younger brother. That's the legacy of Isaac. And if you think it can't get much worse than that, then you are wrong. Because Jacob flees to Rebekah's brother's home, Laban. And there he falls in love with 
his daughter, Rachel. And Laban says that if you work for me for seven years, then I will give you this daughter. I will give you this one that you love. And so he does. He works for seven years. But you know the story. The deceiver gets deceived and on the wedding night realizes that he is married, not Rachel, but Leah. And then Laban says, well, if you work for seven more years, then I will give you Rachel too. And so what is the end result? Jacob is married to two women, two, two sisters. There's nothing that can go wrong with that, right? <laughs> Just like Jacob and Esau, there's sibling rivalry between Rachel and between Leah. And it becomes a, a baby race, a baby competition. Leah is able to have several children. And she makes fun of Rachel, who's seemingly not able to bear any. And so Rachel says, well, I'll solve this. I will give to Jacob my maidservants so that she will have some children on my behalf. And Leah says, well, I can play that game too. And, and she gives Jacob her maidservant to have even more children. And so you have one man and four women. And you read that and you go, this is not right. This would be on some smutty daytime talk show program. This should not be in the Bible. And yet, there it is. And the result is a whole host of children. One of which Jacob favors over the other. You would have thought that he would have learned the lesson from his own parents. That that's not a good thing. The sins of the father passed on to the children. And yet, Jacob favors this one son, Joseph, and gives this coat to him, which demonstrated that he was the, the chosen son, the favored son, which again, not shockingly, does not go over well with his brothers. And so what do, does his brothers do? Do they, do they rib him? Do they harass him a little? No, they sell him into slavery, which, by the way, was the more humane option because most of them wanted to kill him. And then they proceed to lie to their father that an animal had killed him. Once again, the sins of the father deceiving those that are over them. And Joseph goes from being sold into slavery to being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife to being put in jail and then being forgotten in jail by the one that he helped to get out, to then being promoted to second in command of all of Egypt. Oh yeah, by the way, so that he could help out his scoundrel brothers when they come, even though they sold him there. They were looking for this morsel of bread. And there, Joseph, with their lives in his hands, gives them what they are looking for instead of that which they truly deserved. Literally, you can't make this stuff up. And that is just the first book of the Bible. We could go on. You don't need reality TV. You have it in the Bible. This is all the reality you need, and it's not pretty. 
You thought your family history was bad. You thought your family put the fun in dysfunctional. No, this does. And we could. We could go all around and we all could share stories, couldn't we? The point is, all of us have it. It's all there. In other words, it's not shocking that our reality fits the reality of Scripture. That the Scripture tells it like it really is. It, it doesn't paint this picture of, of pie in the sky, that everything is right, that everything is good, everything is in harmony in the world. No, it does not sugarcoat the reality of this life. And the Scriptures tell it like it is. And we know why it is that way. It all stems from Genesis chapter 3, the curse of the fall, the curse of a fallen world, a fallen life. And we too are broken and sinful people. That we are mere shadows, broken images of our original form. Now none of this is to condone this behavior. No, we abhor it. Just as we abhor sin in our own lives and, and in the stories of our families. We lament it and we weep over it. Indeed, it is tragic. But we should not despair. We should not think it is hopeless. Or think that nothing good can come from it, nor should we think that sin and, and Satan have won the day, because that is to forget that there is a God that is much greater than man and much greater than all of earth's happenings, one who is not the author of sin, but still directs and still rules and still overrules the things that happen on this planet. All to bring about his purposes. And so that is what we see, even though in the light of the curse of a fallen family, we see the blessing of a covenant God. And so that goes back to our original question, why would these characters be included in the great hall of faith? Isaac was weak. Jacob was a cheat. Joseph was a victim. Why them? Well, I think in part to say that these are our fathers. These are our roots. And we do not deny it. We do not try to hide from it. We recognize that we live in a desperately fallen world. And so too are we. Whereas the world wants to hide that reality, whereas it wants to keep it hidden, it wants to say there is nothing to see here. No, we can expose it and be exposed by it. Why? Because there's an answer. See, we can talk about the disease because there is a cure. There is a solution. See, the world can't hide, or the world wants to hide because they have no answers. They have no solution. And so to bring it up is only to expose the disease, but to have nothing in their minds that can cure it. But we in Christ can 
ultimately be truthful about ourselves. That we can say that I am a sinner. And I come from a long line of sinners. And yet not despair over that reality. Why? Because our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in humanity. Our faith is in God. Our faith is in our Heavenly Father. And despite man's sinfulness, despite how much mankind has tried to ruin this reality that we live in, has tried to ruin this world, God has been faithful. God has made a covenant and is faithful to that covenant. Remember, he made that covenant with Abraham. But he made that covenant with more than just Abraham. In fact, Genesis 17, the Lord says to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. Do you hear what God is saying to Abraham? That I am not only being gracious and merciful to you by making a covenant with you, I'm also going to be gracious and faithful to your offspring after you. And God has always kept his end of the covenant. In other words, he has always been faithful both in word and in action. Did you hear our call to worship this morning from Hebrews chapter 6? It says it is impossible for God to lie. So we know that God has been perfectly faithful. Well, how about those that he has made covenant with? Have they been faithful? And what we would say is a resounding no. Not only was Abraham not perfectly faithful, but Isaac was even worse. And Jacob I want to say is even worser. I know that's not a word. My son oftentimes likes to use that. You've made it worser and in some way that fits here. Jacob was worser. If you keep going down the family line, you would see that there's failure after failure. Except for one. Except for one. There was one offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David who does not fail and who does not fall short. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying Christ was the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. That God was making his perfection in his son, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why God could remain patient and remain long-suffering and be, remain gracious despite man's sinfulness. As much as man tried to mess it up, God remained and remains faithful and can give grace upon grace. And that is why we call it the covenant of grace. Because it was grace upon grace upon grace. 
that is given again and again and again. And isn't that what we read as we read through Genesis? And really when we read through the entirety of the Bible, and oh yeah, when we also look at our lives, we see grace upon grace upon grace. And here is the amazing thing. This is the point of why these three are in Hebrews 11. Despite all their failures, despite of them falling short, each one of them held on to, they clung to the covenant promise. That covenant promise that was made with their father and with their grandfather and with their great-grandfather, Abraham. And they were faithful to pass it on to the next generation. They left a legacy of faith because their faith was not, again, in themselves or in humanity. It was in the faithful covenant God. Look back at Hebrews 11 with me. It says, verse 20, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. What did he bless them with? He blessed them with the blessings of the covenant. The same thing in verse 21, when it says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff, which is just a beautiful picture. It's an incredible picture. Here's a man that cheated and manipulated and lied and believed that he was able to, to get and gain all that he had by the work of his hands. That is, until he came unto the living God. And we read about that in Genesis 32 when he literally wrestles with God and he is made humble. And from that point, he walks by faith. And so we have this wonderful picture that says bowing in worship over the head of his staff. What a beautiful picture of old age. There it is, even in old age, bowing in worship before God. And it says he blessed the sons of Joseph, who, by the way, were half Egyptian, because Joseph's wife was Egyptian. And yet, Jacob, nor does the rest of the Bible, treat them as half-breeds. No, he blesses them with the covenants. Which demonstrates, even from the very beginning, that the covenant line would be far greater. It would include all of the nations of the earth. We see that in the family line of Christ, do we not? That it is of all nations, it's of all people, it's of all races, as the world understands races. He blesses the sons of Joseph. And yet we have that wonderful story. We see still a little bit of sanctified conniving in Jacob. Because when he goes to bless these two sons, Joseph arranges them so that the, the oldest will be on uh, Jacob's right hand and the youngest will be on the left. And you remember that Jacob does this. He switches his hands. He crosses his hands. So much so that Joseph tries to uh, undo it. And he says, no, no, no. They will both be blessed. But the younger will be greater than the older. The same thing that happened with Jacob and Esau. It's a simple reminder that the Lord never works as we expect. That his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts greater than our thoughts. 
But then perhaps the strangest of all of these is verse 22, when it says that Joseph gave direction concerning his bones. That seems a little bit weird. You might say, why does he care? Isn't he in heaven? Isn't he enjoying all the blessings? Why does he care about what happens to his body? What happens to his bones? It's a beautiful demonstration that we still care for the body, even in death. That the body isn't just a prison house for the soul. But even more than that, it demonstrates that Joseph was clinging to the covenant promise. Why was that? Because Abraham was told that your descendants for 400 years would be in another land, but that God would bring them out in a great exodus. And so Joseph wants to remind his descendants, those that come after him, of the covenant promise of God. So that when little Susie, the Israelite there in Egypt says, Mommy, why is it that we still have great, 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 great grandfather Joe's bones? They can say, because this isn't our home. Because the Lord has promised another land for us. Do you see how all of them wanted the next generation to remember this covenant promise? And that's exactly what happens is that when they leave in this wonderful grand exodus, they take Joseph's bones because Joseph wanted all of them to be reminded that he was an Israelite. He was not a pagan Egyptian, that his God was the true God of Israel. His God was the true God of the covenant, not the gods of Egypt. And so I hope I'm making myself clear here. Yes, all of these were characters, yet all of them were clinging to the covenant promises, the covenant blessings for themselves as well as their descendants. They were trusting in God and trusting in his plan. And so, therefore, do what they did without doing what they have done. Don't do what they have done in regards to their unfaithfulness and sin. Just be reminded that they had far less revelation than us. We live in the the full light of the revelation of Christ. They had just a, a mere shadow of that. So let's not use their lives to try to justify our sin in any way or or try to stop from pursuing after godliness or holiness, but rather let us learn from them both in the things that they did wrong as well as the things that they did right. And what they did right was at the end of their life, they're saying, this is all that matters. This is all that there is to hold on to. That there is nothing else in this life than this God that I have. And I will cling on to him both in life and in death. And so I know, I know, life seems oftentimes chaotic and crazy. It does in my world as well. And oftentimes you can go to bed at night and think, you know what? I did a lot today. But what of it was profitable? What of it was eternal? What of it was lasting? What of it was spiritual? Most days you, you'll probably say it was hard to say that there was any divine moments in today. You've heard that phrase, right? Oh, that was a divine moment. 
And I understand what people are trying to say by that. But I want to tell you something, that a life committed to God, it's all divine moments. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Why? Because the divine is in control of all of our moments. Do you understand? And so live your life committed to God and committed to his ways and pointing yourself and pointing your children to this same wonderful God who is always faithful. Faithful to us as a covenant God that gives us wonderful covenant promises. Promises that we see at baptism. Promises that we see here at the table. And say that's what matters. Yes, there's a lot in my life that is wrong. There's a lot of life that is chaff, that will be burned up at the end, that is worthless and nothing. But there is something that is great and that is grand. And that is God himself. That is my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Leave that heritage to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Because that is the legacy of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And what we should also see especially as we approach the table. We should get great encouragement from this aspect of this passage. Not only be committed to God, but even more so, be encouraged that God is committed to you through his covenants, through the Lord Jesus Christ. This God that is sworn and cannot lie, that all the promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has sealed them with his very own blood. Isn't that what we see at the table? All of his promises are sealed with his very own blood. And I tell you what. In the midst of the chaos. In the midst of the crazy. That will sustain you. Because that is that which is everlasting. And so praise God. Praise God. That our God is the Father. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That he is not the God of the perfect. No, he is the God of those that have been made perfect by Christ, the perfect offspring of Abraham. And therefore, he is not ashamed to be called their God. And he is not ashamed to be called your God. And so let us go to him even now. Amen.